So, hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of EU and Me, <laughs> which is our first uh, episode of uh, this incredible new series. Uh, basically, it's going to be a, a bit of a completion to what our burrito does. We will have uh, uh, every week a brief commentary made by me and Dermot on uh, the uh, most recent news at the European level. And then uh, every week we will have a guest uh, talking about a particular topic of relevance uh, for the uh, European Union and uh, uh, for uh, what Arbury Road uh, does for our agenda. Who we have today, Dermot? <laughs> so, first up today, um, probably the country that's been the most controversial country in the last few months and maybe years in the EU, uh, which is Hungary, who have had quite a few controversies this week and well over the last week so first of all um we can talk about the most recent which happened a couple of days ago was um, a member of the european parliament for hungary obviously made comments which i have in front of me here that i'm going to read out to you it, it relates to the to the rule of law and the ongoing argument between poland and hungary regarding the um, recovery fund now, as we all know, Poland and Hungary have vetoed the recovery fund because they don't want the rule of law to be um, relevant in the allocation of funds. This obviously goes against a core belief of the EU, and the, the battle is ongoing. So, um, one Hungarian MEP named Thomas Deutsch made the comment saying that, so after the EU stated um, that Poland and Hungary should have nothing to fear from the rule of law, because obviously, if you respect the rule of law, why would you fear a rule of law stipulation on the recovery fund? To which Deutsch responded that it is just like, he said, if you have nothing to hide, you don't need to be afraid. I well remember that the Gestapo and the AVH, which were the, the Hungarian secret police in the communism era, had the same motto. That's what they said. It's like the historical experience of those living in Germany and Hungary at the time when they had at the time they had fears who had nothing to cover up so naturally this is an absolutely outrageous comment to make Paco would you agree yeah uh, it is a really I think big problem that has been uh, uh, you know uh, not only Hungary but Poland like these governments which are going in a in liberal uh, direction definitely uh, for the past years uh, I think it opens the broader question, which is uh, about the EU and the uh, relationship with the single uh, member states. Um, I would like, for example, if you think about the Corona, um, at the recovery fund and the Corona crisis, it's like the EU shouldn't let, in my opinion, this single state create a problem and veto something as important as the recovery fund. So I think it opens really a discussion, you know, the, both Poland and Hungary committed to respect the rule of law when they entered the European Union. So mm -hmm. that is a essential commitment. Yeah, it's a, you it's need. a core principle of the, of the Union, absolutely. Exactly. So I think it's really time to find a, a way that doesn't involve unanimity for the EU to uh, mm -hmm. progress and to take action. Maybe a qualified majority. A qualified majority is yeah. a good you idea. Could explain perhaps what... Yeah, so one method that the so at the moment, if we if you want to pass um, legislation in the in the EU, you need unanimity, as you said. If one country vetoes, you cannot you cannot continue with the with the proposal. Hungary and Poland have created this this alliance, let's say, whereby 
it's, it's clear that both ruling governments are not interested in the rule of law. Both ruling governments aren't interested in equality. In some ways, they're not even interested in democracy. They're interested in power, and in some cases, authoritarian power, totalitarian power, which is what they've, how they've been acting. Now, what a qualified majority would mean would be, for one of the examples that was proposed, um, would be, say, 65 or even 55% of the member states, as long as it made up over 65% of the total European population, should be enough to get something passed. Yeah. Now, there could be arguments made against that system as well, but to me it seems far, far, more, far superior to the, the unanimity idea, because what's happened with Hungary and Poland is that the EU had the view that as soon as someone enters the EU, the only way is forward. The only, the only thing that's going to happen is progress. And we've seen that that's not the case. Hungary, both Hungary and Poland, Hungary in particular, have taken a massive step back away from democracy, away from the rule of law, away from equality. And that can't, that can't continue. We're caught in a deadlock at the moment. And yeah, these controversies we've seen over the last week in Hungary are they're going to go punished now. They're really, they're slipping up. They've, they thought they could get away with acting in personal interest, but now their members are starting to make mistakes and they're going to be caught on those mistakes and they're going to be scrutinized for those mistakes. Mistakes and orgies. Mistakes and orgies, as you say, that leads us nicely onto the next, the next topic, which relates to another Fidesz member. Fidesz, of course, are the, the ruling party of Viktor Orban in Hungary. His name is Josef Shire. And on Sunday, he resigned as an MEP after being caught by police, scaling down a building, leaving uh, what has been described as a sex party with mostly men in attendance. And when the police reprimanded him, he was also caught with ecstasy pills in his bag. Yeah. Now, of course, the ecstasy pills weren't his. He doesn't know how they got there. He wasn't involved in any of the sex of the party. And it's just, it's, it's not only an outrageous scandal, of course, because it broke lockdown regulations. I mean, a member of the European Parliament breaking lockdown reg uh, regulations in Brussels, going to a party with too many people above a cafe in the middle of the city centre. But more than that, it just shows the hypocrisy of some of these members of Fidesz, because this man, Scheer, has been vocally anti-LGBTI in the past. And yet here he is showing up at what has been described as a mostly male orgy. Yeah, to be fair, this doesn't surprise me too much, like in the sense that he's often the case, like he's often these people who are, you know, the most, uh, like, against uh, LGTB, but in general, uh, the less liberal the people are, the more they end up being uh, actually uh, hiding yeah, it, something, it, hiding something, like hiding something in their private life, hiding. Uh, so, what really. I think this connects us with the sort of hypocrisy which in general is in this sort of new uh, right wing, extreme right, I would define, um, reactionary and uh, sovereignist movements where you know like the same, you know, you have hypocrisy in your private life which is an hypocrisy also in the receipts you sell to people, like the solutions you sell to people mm -hmm. which are, uh, I think most of these people are not stupid, they know these solutions won't work, they know Hungary cannot be alone, cannot solve the problems of the Hungarian population alone. They know that you need a European Union. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet they keep on uh, talking about going back to the nation state when they perfectly yeah. know this solution is not valuable. Yeah. Exactly. They want, they want Hungary and Poland at the moment, particularly Hungary again, um, they want their complete national sovereignty. They want to build their country using European funds. They don't want to engage 
in European principles and they don't want to uphold those principles that are really the basis for the entire European Union. Um, a, third, a third controversial story that came out about Hungary this week relates to the Hungarian-born US financier George Soros, who I'm sure most of us are already familiar with. And it comes from a Hungarian government cultural commissioner, who's also the head of a museum, said that, and I quote here, Europe has become George Soros's gas chamber, and poisonous gas flows from the capsule of a multicultural open society which is deadly for the European way of life. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, uh, too much about George Soros, he's also a Holocaust survivor. And these comments, he also went on, sorry, the, the, the man in question's name is Zillard Demeter, and he also went on to add that directly comparing Soros to Hitler in this sentence, he accused him of being a liberal Fuhrer whose Liberarian army deifies him more than Hitler's own did. This, this transcends political incorrectness. This is a man who's in a position of power in his country. He's a cultural figure. He leads a museum and he compared a Holocaust survivor to Adolf Hitler. It's as deplorable as you could ever imagine. Uh, unfortunately, this kind of metaphor uh, comparing the EU to Hitler is not new because, like you know, there were a lot also in the Brexit campaign mm -hmm. uh, association between even Merkel and Hitler uh, with no sense at all. Again, I think uh, all this brings us, you know, because now we are talking about Hungary, uh, Poland, like as if it was a separate problem, but actually it's something that is, you know, this sort of reactionary and extremist, uh, we could even arrive to call them proto-fascist, uh, they have something in common for sure with the old uh, fascist or authoritarian movements. Uh, they are originating in every country, you know, like uh, I'm Italian, we have uh, uh, Salvini, uh, we have seen Le Pen in France, was actually arrived to the ballot, the mm -hmm. final ballot at risk too. So I think uh, while the problem is really bad, like in uh, Poland, in Hungary, probably in this moment, but it's like a European answer we need to yeah. uh, give, and it's a problem that every European state should really face, and, but also uh, the European Union should really uh, try to solve this problem uh, as coordinated, and I think part of the solution is what, I think as at least this is the, the vision, I think, uh, of Barbary Road is like mm, to to try to go back speaking because you know these people have uh, uh, like I think in the especially popular strata they have a big uh, following uh, like they have a lot Absolutely. of followers they have, uh, so I think the solution is trying to go back and talk with people and uh, sell a new vision of the European Union shall sell a new model uh, like clearly the European Union has its own faults and mm -hmm. like the answer is not to keep on pretending these movements don't exist or to say people are stupid, people don't understand, but go back to understand uh, our own mistakes and uh, try to find a solution. Yeah, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head there. And it's, it's that the, the, EU, the EU was lauded at first as being this great progressive union. And in some ways it was. Europe has been peaceful for decades, which was really what we needed more than anything. You have an economic union, but unfortunately that economic union was formed and advanced and continues to advance without the political union that really should be the basis for everything. And as you say, it's time, we can, we can talk about these, these issues until the cows come home, but it's time for some action and there needs to be pan-European 
action. Yeah, because actually we are seeing the consequences of, and this brings us to the second uh, topic we will treat today, like in terms of the last week news, uh, which is racism. Uh, and you know, of course, when you have years and years of these people uh, talking about national mm -hmm. sovereignty, talking about being Hungarian, being mm -hmm. Polish, being Italian, almost as a race. Yeah. Uh, so this really drives back us to the uh, sort of war, interwar period, uh, sort of ultra-nationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, of course, will generate episodes of uh, racism. Like yeah. at the beginning, they are just words, but they escalate rapidly into, uh, unfortunately, into violence. And we have seen that we have had uh, several episodes. Uh, well, the, there was one in France, which has become viral in Europe because there was this... Uh, a uh, black guy beaten mm -hmm. by the police. Uh, now, I think there is this perception a little bit in uh, between among Europeans to be fortunate, like if compared to, for example, the US where phenomena of racism are more frequent and all the sort of black uh, lives matter campaign seems almost as doesn't concern us. In fact, like uh, we see like there are several episodes also in Europe and I think we should have our own version of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah it's not a bad idea because, as you've said there, when as soon as people start to talk about racism in Europe, the immediate comparison is the United States. Now, the, the institutional, institutional deep-rooted racism in the United States, it can't be compared to Europe, and it shouldn't be compared to Europe because it's, it's a very different historic... It comes in a very different, different historical context. You know, the, the history of slaves being so prominent in, in U.S. history, and that, that real... The racial division in in America continues to this day. Now, make no mistake, we have a massive issue with racism here in Europe as well. And I'm glad you brought up the, that incident of the, the Frenchman, I think he was a music producer. Um, police uh, reprimanded him for supposedly not wearing a mask. They went inside, he, had, he walked into his music studio or they escorted him into his music studio and there's video evidence of them beating him for 15 minutes. Now. That's the, that, that is horrible at the best of times, but what makes it even more controversial is that that came in the same week, la late last week, just a day or two after French, the French government proposed to ban the ability for members of the public to video officers when they're in uniform. Now, so on the one side there, you've got the French government saying, all right, we need to protect our police officers from being videoed. And less than 24 hours later, you have video evidence coming out of policemen brutally beating a man for 15 minutes. Yeah. Now, it's not just France. We know France, has a, France does struggle with um, issues of racism, but it, this is absolutely by no means limited to France. And I'd like to mention Portugal for a moment, because over the last, um, the last year, I guess, really, since last October, when, um, so the, as you were saying, the, how, the, how this, these issues started is that it becomes the normalization of racist rhetoric is how a lot of these things start. You saw it with Trump. We saw it during the Brexit campaign with relation to migration. And now in Spain, we saw it with Vox last year. The, the representation of the far right in Europe is growing. They're, they're now, their leaders are getting seats in parliament and they're having a say politically. And that man in Portugal's name is Andre Ventura. Now, he got into parliament last October. And since then, we've seen a massive increase in both death threats and acts of violence committed towards activists, committed towards academics, committed towards anyone who speaks out against the far right or in favor of racial equality. 
Now, with some examples I have here were you had two Brazilian women were attacked outside a police station, were attacked by the police, I'm sorry, outside a club in Cape Verdean. Sorry, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. You had a Portu uh, football player for the team Porto, one of the biggest teams in Portugal, walked off the pitch. His name is Musa Morega, born in Mali, and he abandoned the game after fans were shouting racial slurs. There were also a black woman and her daughter assaulted because they didn't have a bus ticket. And these incidents were rising and rising throughout the year until last July, just a few months ago, an actor named Bruno Cande was murdered, having been shot four times. Now, this murder has been described um, by ENAR, which is the European Network Against Racism, as purely racially motivated. The sad thing is, as we say, we had the issues in France, now we're talking about the issues in Portugal. These issues are cropping up in every single country around the EU. This racism is not a problem for the United States. It is also our, a massive issue here at home. Definitely, and let's not forget also the incidents in uh, uh, which sort of anticipated all of these in Greece, like with the, you know Golden Dawn. Like so, it's actually a problem which is uh, has begun like in I would say in the early 2000 and like is going. Uh, well, it was never it was never not a problem, you know. The 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 fortunate or unfortunate thing that happened, if, depending on which way you look at it, is that all the attention has been on the United States, particularly in Western Europe. We see how prevalent. Uh, the racial divide is over there, and we think, oh, well, at least it's not like that here. Mm -hmm. it, we absolutely struggle with these same issues on the continent. Definitely, and uh, Arbury Road will actually dedicate uh, a, a podcast uh, next, one of the next weeks uh, on to racism. Yeah, we'll we have a couple of experts uh, absolutely, yeah. talking about this, so uh, follow us, and uh, I think it's a team that really needs to be treated. Now let's close with the positive news, just to... Bring up Why not? <laughs> exactly. Which was like a, it's a, now uh, about 10 days uh, old, but is that uh, uh, in Scotland for the first time, um, basically, uh, well, absorbent and. Um, so tampons and sanitary pads. Yeah. Sanitary pads are going to be free for the first time for everyone mm -hmm. and uh, available in uh, pharmacies. In pharmacies, in youth centers. They, they had them, they previously, in 2018, they made them free, freely available in universities, schools, and colleges. But this has now been expanded to youth centers, pharmacies, and other, other points of, of sale of these products, which is absolutely fantastic. So really well done to the Scottish friends, and we really hope as every road that these will become the normality across all the European Union. I think every state should uh, abolish what is called the so-called uh, tampon tax, like, uh, because in the end it ends up being a tax on women and a tax exactly. on uh, consumers. This brings us also to the topic of today's um, podcast, which is welfare. So this is like a measure that should be included in uh, welfare measures, I believe. Mm -hmm. And today, who we have? So we're going we're gonna to pop over now to um, a recording we made just a day ago, where we were joined, myself and Paco were joined by Catherine Rogers, who's a PhD student from the University of Lund in Sweden. And we spoke a little bit about welfare. And yeah, we'll pop over to that footage now. So. We're joined now by Catherine Rogers, who's from Sydney, Australia, and is a PhD student at the University of Lund in Sweden. Catherine also used to work for the New Zealand Treasury as an analyst, and hopefully herself and Paco are going to lead this interesting discussion on welfare. So, uh, Catherine, we'll start with you. Do you want to just give us a little bit of background as to where the idea of a welfare state emerged, how it changed, how it is how it has changed coming right up to 
today in the world? I suppose that's, uh, well, the idea of a welfare state probably emerged a lot later than what we would say the welfare state emerged, right? Usually when we talk about, or when we point to the beginning of the welfare state, we point to the emergence of social insurance schemes in the late 19th and early 20th century. And at that time, I mean, when Bismarck introduced health insurance, he wasn't referring to it as a welfare state, right? So it's not, it's not really until, I don't know, Paco, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but after the Second World War, I would say that people start using the term welfare state um, to talk about those types of benefits. Yeah, uh, basically it's like, uh, it started actually between like, uh, in parallel to the concept of warfare state. So the idea, you know, of warfare, so of the entire economy being based on war, uh, in parallel developed the concept of welfare state. So like the idea was that if you can base the economy and to create, a, uh, to support the war effort, you can at the same time uh, module the economy to support actually a society of welfare. So a society uh, of insurances. The, there is though also a, a difference in, it's not only a difference in the word, but the word uh, is uh, refers to a different concept again. Like, so insurances were, was behind the insurances, Bismarckian insurances was the idea that uh, uh, the state can help. It's basically social peace. The state use insurances to guarantee in a capitalist society, like was Germany in that period, to guarantee to uh, ease uh, um, social uh, disruption, to guarantee to uh, that workers won't rebel, basically, to prevent what was happening in other countries. Let's not remember that this is the period like between like the uh, 18th and 19th century, we had first the uh, you know, uh, French Revolution, we have the uh, 1948 uh, across all Europe, there are a lot of uh, uh, rebellions, there is Marx writing the Communist Manifesto, and then soon later, after World War One, there is the Communist uh, Revolution in, uh, um, in Moscow, uh, in uh, uh, Russia. So, like, it's a period where people are really afraid by uh, communism and by rebellion. Uh, and this is the origin of the Bismarckian social uh, insurances. It's different when we talk about welfare state. There, there is a completely different concept which uh, is connected to Second World War II, basically. Uh, and the idea behind that is that, uh, like, um, welfare should be a right of every citizen. So, in a way, it's connected with the spread of democracy and universalism. And the idea that uh, the state has the duty to cover, uh, to guarantee to its citizen uh, a decent standard of life throughout the entire, uh, his entire life. So uh, to cover if you have, uh, uh, if you lose your job, he will assist you. If someone in your family dies, he will assist you. If you can't afford, a, uh, you know, even a funeral or something like that, the state will assist you. So there are two really different concepts uh, behind this. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's cleared up. So, um, Catherine, again, so moving forward from from the the establishment and the development of welfare states, what is the situation today in the world? What countries offer these kind of protections as a right? What countries maybe did in the past and have moved away from it? What countries didn't have a historical 
I didn't historically engage in this kind of action and now have have started to? What's the current setting in the world with regard to welfare? I mean, I guess I would say that all capitalist countries have some kind of welfare state because it's necessary to, you know, to uh, deal with uh, the problems of industrialization, urbanization, and kind of the uncertainties of living in an economic system which sort of distributes on the basis of work. And what the welfare state does is that it kind of compensates by creating this other distribution system on the basis of need. So I, it's necessary to exist in every country, right? But what we, what we see is that there are different styles of welfare states in different countries, and these have changed over time too. Um, so the, the, the concept of the welfare state based on cradle to grave that Paco is talking about, um, the, uh, uh, is, um, I guess, I mean, you could say like it emerged in Britain, right? Uh, with uh, National Health Service or, or whatever, but over time and in, in, in other respects, the, the British welfare state is a lot more um, uh, residual or sort of targeted than some of the more expansive welfare states that we have in Northern Europe, in Sweden here, are much more kind of based on uh, universal access and, and, and rights. You touched on it there already in the answer. Yeah. What are some of the different models that we see in the world today and how have they evolved from the original idea of, of welfare that we were talking about but going back to post-war and this kind of time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I guess, I, I, the, I mean, as you say, I've already sort of identified, you have the Scandinavian, very universalistic welfare states. Um, we've talked a little bit, a bit about Britain, which in a way is a special case because it's a combination of a universalistic health system uh, together with more, more um, residual um, insurance or uh, transfer systems, right? Um, and then the other, the third main model is the uh, corporatist or conservative welfare states that are more based on this Bismarckian contributory social insurance and they're less redistributive than social democratic welfare states in Northern Europe. Um, there are also some other kinds of models. Um, most of the English speaking world is what we would call liberal or residual like the UK. But in Australia and New Zealand, some people have talked about uh, another model, a radical model of welfare states based on not so much uh, transfers and services, but the regulation of uh, the labor market so that minimum wages are high enough to ensure um, a reasonable standard of living for families. And that's kind of, it has a lot to do with the way that uh, the strategy of organized labor at the beginning of the 20th century. And that we still see today that there's much more regulation of wages in countries like Australia than, you know, than for instance, in European welfare states as a, me a means of ensuring a certain standard of living. Um, but in the last, we always have to remember how far, how long ago the seventies were <laughs> since, <laughs> since the 1970s. I mean, there's, uh, a lot of the story of welfare has been in, in a way an expectation that in response to uh, economic crises there would be a retrenchment of the welfare state that these benefits would sort of be taken away. I mean that's not it's, it's not been entirely the case that spending levels have gone down but certainly what we've seen is um, 
more introduction of mixed models, even in Scandinavia, many more private providers uh, being subsidized to deliver services. Uh, but also in those liberal countries that are more residual, sort of uh, a greater targeting of, of, um, of transfers. Yeah. Okay, so uh, keeping, keeping, um, keeping our eye firmly on Europe now, let's say, and obviously we're fully, we fully believe in the idea of more European integration. We think the rules should pretty much apply across the European Union if they apply in one member state or the other. And if we were to introduce the idea of, well, a rough idea of a European welfare state, a couple of questions. First of all, is this an achievable goal? Obviously, as you said, it will, it's, it's an essential part of pretty much any capitalist system. Would we be limiting ourselves to capitalism if we wanted a European welfare state? Is there, could the European welfare state be the end goal in a post-capitalist Europe? And if we can find a, a model for a welfare state that would apply to Europe, what would the model look like? Or what, would, what model would be most likely to be successful in Europe? The more um the more universal or the more residual or some sort of a hybrid system like you see in some countries yeah um i guess i mean there's there's it's hard to think about a european welfare state and a post-capitalist welfare state um because to have a welfare state you need a state Mm -hmm. and europe is not a state presently anyway um so that's one side and and then and then the the other is yeah that the welfare state as i've talked about is is a distinctly i mean it's it's an artifact of capitalism mm-hmm. but that's not to say that the concept of welfare and the idea that welfare should be publicly uh insured mm-hmm. is capitalist it doesn't have to be right mm-hmm. um so in a in a non-capitalist society if you had a distribution system that was not based on the sale of labor, there would be no need for social insurances or these types of kind of, you know, the collectivization of savings to make sure that when you're sick or retired that you're looked after. You wouldn't need those types of of things, right? But um, having a distribution system based on need is very much in line with the concept of, you know, public responsibility for the provision of welfare, right? and I suppose if I was to think about what does a European welfare system uh, or a sort Better of term, like, yeah. um, because actually with welfare state, sorry, this small parenthesis, but with welfare state, when we use the word welfare state, we refer to a precise model, which is what Catherine was saying, the Scandinavia from cradle to grave. So this idea of universal welfare state. Oh, okay. welfare system, like for example, a corporate system is a welfare system rather than a welfare state. Okay, that's my mistake. So for using the, the no, 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 term. so let's let's forget the idea of a academic. Uh, <laughs> I think, and I would. I mean, I think I would disagree. Like, not. I mean, maybe not with the academic point, but the the people use the word welfare state also to describe how welfare is provided for in Australia or in Germany or you know or in in the US as well people talk about it an American welfare state too so in the more general sense we can talk about varieties of welfare state you know even if the even if what we yeah what you're thinking of is kind of the more universalistic Scandinavian model right okay this is my supervisor uh, (laughs) (laughs) welfare state is only the Scandinavian one like be careful okay (laughs) (laughs) 
so if I can uh, jump in on this anyway, like because I think though the different models are quite interesting, it, uh, also in this discussion about a possible European welfare system, in the sense that you know the, the idea of a European welfare system or welfare state, actually you can use the word here, uh, is not new. There are discussion about this from the 40s, from uh, 1948, immediately after the first Denag uh, Congress, which is called also Congress of Europe, is when they sort of start think about European integration. And I think it entrenches a lot with the discussion about two different models of European integration. One, which was a Europe of nations, which is mainly, uh, you know, uh, Churchill was the one championing this model. So the idea that within a sort of European government, you would have maintained those national governments, so national sovereignty and national independence. The other idea was that of a federal Europe from the beginning. So the idea of creating immediately from the start a, a European federal government, which was like uh, about the federalist, uh, was more left-wing, of course, as an idea, uh, because involved like uh, uh, many like Altiero Spinelli, who was actually uh, part of the Communist Party in Italy, but also like because it implied also uh, indeed the creation of a European welfare uh, system. So one unique system rather than having different models uh, from the beginning for uh, the entire Europe. And in my vision, this is a fundamental passage because the idea there, you know, the model after World War II was the Beveridge Report, which is this British model, which is what we were discussing. So this universal welfare system where every citizens would have been every citizen, not like if you're a worker, not if you lose your job, but every citizen, uh, not on the basis of your uh, income, every citizen throughout the course of their life uh, are guaranteed uh, such a rights. And the thing this discussion is particularly interesting if we talk about the future, because you know, with the emergence of a lot of uh, uh, new phenomena, like could be mass unemployment due, for example, to uh, you know, uh, automatization and robotization of jobs, rather than, for example, what we are seeing now with coronavirus, you know, with a lot of people needing care like from the state like necessarily like so i think it's a really interesting concept to um to recover because then this was uh, actually in the process of european integration completely lost and actually the bismarckian corporatist model based on uh, work occupation became the main european model like you know the german italian french just to uh, be clear why Italy and Spain are actually a mix because they have a universal uh, healthcare, but uh, the, the insurance system is based on the Bismarckian traditional. Paco, a question for you. Um, and again, it's a, it's a question. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but you're saying that the push then went towards the more corporate model, let's say. Would it be fair to say that a big impact in that push was due to the the relationship countries would have had to their historical monarchies. You know what I mean? As you say, some countries who had trust in their monarchies, like Scandinavian countries, for example, it was easier to move to a more universal approach because they were more trusting of the government to handle more aspects of their life. Whereas in other countries, Ireland, for example, where in Ireland they broke away from, obviously it was the British monarchy, there's a massive distrust there and a distrust in the government in general and um, it's more difficult to apply that system. Mm. 
Do you see that historical context as still relevant today? Did it have a big impact at the time and would it have an impact these days? So, I mean, there might be, and then perhaps Catherine knows more about this, uh, being a Swedish <laughs> living right now. Uh, I, I, I don't know about Ireland, the case of Ireland. I think in this case, as far as we are talking between universalist and corporate system, what really makes the difference uh, a little bit is like a tradition, like so, like for example, in Germany, like the corporate system recovers the idea of the corporation uh, of uh, labor. So like medieval idea where, you know, like different people in a sector would associate together and uh, uh, sort of enact some forms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, insurance or whatever, like, or uh, even regulate prices and make some laws like for the category. So it's the idea of a sort of uh, by sector uh, solidarity. Like, so let's say all the uh, I don't know, workers of steel, coal and steel, just to make an example, which is the, the origin of the European model, not the coal and steel community, you would make some uh, rules for that sector. And that is really where this uh, idea of corporatist welfare comes out. The universalist is actually uh, way more recent. Like again, it originates more with the uh, in the in the let's say uh, atmosphere of the Keynesian revolution. So the idea that the state needs to intervene into economy, and so it's a way of uh, actually uh, again it's based more like so Keynes realizes parts of his idea uh, looking at uh, uh, Nazi Germany, looking at communist Russia. It's a way of. Uh, intervening in the economy without losing, as uh, Catherine was saying, the capitalist system, so also the free market, also the freedom. So it's a bit of a, a, a third way between uh, American, at that point, hypercapitalism or British hypercapitalism before the, the 40s, 1940s, and uh, the communist sort of direct control of the economy. Mm -hmm. And again, Catherine might know more about the monarchies, uh, I'm not a big fan of monarchies in general. I am for to cut. Uh, I don't think any of us are. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think it has less to do with the history of monarchies and more to do with the way that the masses who were enfranchised in the late 19th century, if they were men, and early 20th century or mid 20th century, even if they were if, if they were women, um, the way that they were organised by the by institutional politics and by the political parties that became sort of influential. So in corporatist systems, the mass parties were the Christian Democratic parties, which had an interest in those existing corporatist systems, um, you know, because of the value of voluntary organizations in, you know, Catholic social doctrine, etc. Um, but yeah, in, in countries like Scandinavia, where the mass parties were social democratic parties, that were interested in, you know, promoting equal rights and um, and also interested in the emancipation of the individual from organizations like like the family or or, or whatever that was sort of more interested in individualism and equality um, in those countries where the masses were, you know, voting for for social democratic parties, then the more uh, universal models kind of became expanded and became became dominant as as Paco says much later yeah absolutely okay that's clearer now so keeping that in mind and again moving back to this idea of well this 
the idea we would all love. If we had a European welfare system, how do we how do we appreciate, as you were saying, the 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 parties that had had the power and the groups that had power and influence at the time were the ones who dictated what happened essentially. How do we take people and groups, political parties and other other uh, groups from 27 different countries and find a common system which everyone, well, we can all acknowledge that it's a system that is there for the benefit of everyone, but how do you bring everyone's ideas and views of what's good for them together and establish a system like this in Europe, or at least attempt to, or at least find the, the right model that could apply? This, for? Oh. this is a question for both yeah. of you. Okay, I can start just, first of all, I think we need to uh, ask ourselves why like, do we need a European welfare system? So that, let's start from that, right? because I think that is a fundamental question. Like, so why like, we have welfare systems in Europe right now, why do we need that European centralized system? Do we need this? To me, uh, the question, the answer is yes. And it's clear if you look at a certain, a series of phenomena which are uh, happening in Europe right now. First of all, people don't live anymore in one country. Uh, they live in different countries, perhaps in different countries in the same year. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the economy in many ways, like, we have a generation of European who is already European rather than Italian, rather than uh, English, German, or whatever. They're already living in a, in a Europe which is uh, integrated in certain forms. Uh, furthermore, I believe, like in doing the process of um, globalization, this has to do also with the process of globalization. You know, if we have uh, witnessed the phenomenon where, like, you know, if uh, a state enacts um, welfare measures which are too uh, strong. So for example, uh, uh, this will of course bring the cost of labor up because like, you know, putting welfare measure means that you need to pay a part of the wage uh, for the workers to, um, to, to pay the welfare. Uh, and if you have national welfare systems, you will have this phenomenon which uh, we have been witnessing of competition between one nation and the other. So like if in a nation which has less welfare measures, the cost of labor is lower, investor might invest in that nation rather than in another nation. And so you, you, what happens is this process where countries where the labor costs less, and so workers have less rights, are becoming more capitalistically, uh, you know, good for an investment. Mm -hmm. And so you can't anymore impose, I believe, a welfare measure at a national level. Again, a concrete example, in Italy, perhaps the cost of labor is too high. So what happened in the uh, 1990s, early 2000, is a lot of people started to, Italian people, open uh, companies in Romania, where you, know, you have way less um, rights for the labor, for the workers. But that, of course, is a really bad and, uh, process, like where like, workers are losing rights. I believe the minimum thing is right now you need a European coordination to guarantee that all the European citizens, and it's different when you talk about Europe, because of course it's like, uh, as an aggregate, it's probably the first economy in the world. So if the entire European Union imposes certain measures, then will be not only a model for other countries, but also will be capable of imposing it uh, continent-wide. That's my answer. 
but Catherine probably disagrees with it. Like, you know, I see the, 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 the problems that there are in this process. Yeah, I suppose, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I agree that in, in order for there to be coordination between all of the countries in Europe, then the European Union, well, one way of having that would be for the European Union to be the sovereign, be the state in the welfare state, right? Because it, in order for any kind of welfare system to have some kind of legitimacy and, and to work for citizens, it needs to be negotiated democratically. And so if we're going to have the same system for all of Europe, then that negotiation has to occur at the level of a European polity. Um, so that, that is, I would see, like one solution to uh, a coordinated and having the same type of welfare system in all of Europe. But the other way is much more difficult politically, it, in a way, I think, would be that national governments would have to impose uh, the same measures in all countries, but measures that, you know, for example, in Sweden, might not really be in the interests of Swedish citizens and Swedish voters, they might be actually more for the benefit of someone on the other side of Europe. And, and for that to happen, I mean, it's, it's just difficult for a national politician to, to make that decision, right? Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think in order for that to happen or in order for the European Union to become, you know, to become a sovereign for the European Parliament to have, have that kind of uh, power, both of those uh, ways of having a European welfare system require some kind of, you know, the building of a coalition throughout Europe for a European identity, you know, for people, citizens, voters, but citizens in all of Europe to sort of feel part of all of Europe and feel empathy with people on the other side of the continent, you know, for whom these policies will be beneficial, if not, you know, for themselves. So I think they're both hard and I don't really know which one is more unlikely. <laughs> like, yeah. so I, I, I'm not, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's hard to find that. No, I just, I just a quick, I'm just saying, I, I completely agree. It's very difficult to find the balance of for example, someone from a northern European country saying, okay, this is going to damage me personally this much, but it might bring up someone in Eastern Europe's life this much. That's what we need to find. And that common feeling hasn't been found in Europe yet. We see it a lot with a lot of people we talk to and a lot of our colleagues. Um, but that general feeling doesn't seem to be everywhere yet, which is a massive problem when we're trying to get these cooperative measures introduced. Definitely. No, I agree. I mean, it's, of course, a really complicated question. And especially there is also a generational component, I find, where younger people are more perhaps open to consider the idea of a Europe, while, you know, older generations are still more attached to the national um, model, sort of, to a national identity. But uh, the, the thing is that in many ways, in my opinion, the European Union is already a state, and especially if we consider at least the euro area. Uh, like, you know, you have a unique currency, you have economic policies which are dictated by a central authorities and like uh, a lot of things you need to respect. So in a way, okay, let, let's for now talk about the Euro area because it's a different question, the Euro area probably and the entire EU, but you already, in many ways, you are already working as a state. Is a probably really neoliberal conception of a state where the economy somehow will solve the problems without a political authority on it, mm. but is a state in the way it's working. And in the same way as a, a state works, like you know, if northern Italy is really rich, southern Italy is poor. 
is not like just because Northern Italy is rich and Southern Italy is poor. It's also because Northern Italy exploits the, the fact that it's one country only to become richer. And it's like the economies are interrelated. So Southern Italy doesn't grow as much because Northern products are cheaper because uh, everything like in terms of production is uh, cheaper in the North. And so the South for the South has been really difficult historically to develop. The same happens when, once you have a unique currency uh, in a system of countries. So like now Germany has been doing great, like in, economically in the past, apart that now also Germany is having some flexion, but like in the past 30 years, let's say it was the country doing better. But of course that is also because it's exploiting the entire system of the Euro area to, you know, its economy is working on all of this uh, on, uh, you know, if before, like let's say a Spanish car could be uh, could compete with the German car because it was way cheaper because like then uh, pesos and uh, uh, Deutschmark had a really different weight so like as in the international market the Spanish car could have been way cheaper of the German not the same quality but really cheap and they could have a competition now with the euro the cost of production is really similar and so like sudden all of, all of a sudden all the Spanish in industries find really difficult to compete with the German ones. And so like you definitely need, I think, mechanism of redistribution, redistribution at the European level, at least in the Euro areas. Otherwise, it would, won't simply work as it wouldn't work at the national level because every nation has mechanism of redistribution between one region and the other. Uh, richer region, for, if, for the nation to work, richer region needs to transfer part of the money to the poorest region. Yeah, you've touched on you've touched on one of the main the main issues there in the EU nowadays, I think, and we've seen it not just in relation to to the these kind of issues we're talking about of welfare and, and the economy, but the economic nature of the EU has gone so far past the political power and the political influence and the political abilities of the EU, and it's very difficult to bridge that gap, you know. To, everything in the EU has become so tightly linked, all the member states, even if we look at the issue again of the, we've been talking about it for weeks, the rule of law and with Poland and Hungary continuing to veto the recovery plan because they disagree with the clause that stipulates they must uh, adhere to the rule of law. And there's no mechanism to get around that veto at the moment. You know, it's just another, this is another example of the economic nature of the EU being prioritized and being stronger and having gone so far past the political side of things that it seems it's very difficult to try and come up with ideas now as to how we catch up politically. You know what I mean? As you said, the Eurozone now is, it's, it's really become a Eurozone where everything is, as you say, the price is the same in Germany or Spain or wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. So again, more easy questions for you guys. How are we gonna bridge this gap? certainly difficult uh, and I'll let Catherine co conclude but I think it starts from what Catherine was saying like from building uh, an identity a new uh, which is a little bit also what Arbury Road now is trying to do a new progressive identity uh, in Europe uh, which passes in my opinion through also the idea of that we can discuss on the different model we can discuss on how as Catherine was saying you reach a sort of homogeneity uh, of welfare at the European level but passes through the idea that we need 
a sort of welfare in all European system, a similar welfare. And we need redistribution Europe-wide and not only because it makes sense economically. I think it definitely makes sense economically is the right thing to do also economically because, you know, the GDP of the entire European Union, you know, if you find the way of, to make Southern Italy as rich as Northern Italy, like the, the Italy would become one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, but it's not only economically, but it's also the right thing to do morally and ethically. Like, I mean, is uh, uh, the European Union has the resources, has the intelligence, has the uh, everything that needs to guarantee to everyone a really good standard of life. And uh, I think this is the kind of society I want to live in and we should want to live in. Absolutely. Catherine, anything to add before we wrap this up? Um, no, I think Paco kind of summarized my, my thoughts, my, my thoughts well, that I think a European identity is the foundation of how you get kind of uh, democratic buy-in into that system, right? Because in order for it to be legitimate, uh, citizens all across Europe need to feel like they're part of the same group as other Europeans. Um, because if you're, if you're uh, looking at other countries and other citizens as someone that you're in competition with, then you're very unlikely to support policies that, that redistribute to them, right? Um, especially if I'm not affected by the kind of uh, bad consequences of uh, poor redistribution that are going on. So for example, crime rates in Spain don't affect me very much in, in, in Sweden, right? So if I'm not affected by the externalities of, of uh, not having uh, a good redistributive system across Europe, then I need to buy into the same, that I'm in the same group as those people in Spain, that I have some, you know, some affection for those people. And I don't see myself as in competition with them. Uh, so that's why I think that a European identity is key to whatever institutional path leads this to happening. Fantastic. Catherine, thanks a million. So that was that was us speaking to Catherine Rogers um, just a day ago about welfare. I'm sure. Well, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. Yeah. That brings this first episode of EU and Me to an end. Um, so it, thanks again to Catherine Rogers, our first guest, yeah. Yeah. and thanks to everyone for watching. And stay tuned for more. Stay tuned. Next week we should have, uh, if everything goes well. Uh, environment so we'll talk about the climate crisis some uh, environmental experts really yeah. central topic to well, the future of all of us so i'll see you next week bye bye ciao